Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host Tony, and today we're going to look at Wolfenstein 3D, a first-person shooter, some would say the grandfather of all first-person shooters, developed by id Software and published by Apogee Software and FormGen in 1992 for the Microsoft DOS computer platform and operating system, and later ported to various other platforms. We're going to be talking about that in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, we have a little bit of housekeeping to discuss. This is episode number 12. We are in December of 2022, and I remain excited about what we've been doing here. I've had a blast playing all these games. I hope you've all enjoyed listening. I truly do want to build a community around classic games and this podcast and just having awesome discussions. If you'd like to reach out and have a discussion, I do have a couple of ways you can reach out to me. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I also have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt. So I am definitely interested in hearing what you all think. If you have ideas about future episodes or would like to talk about prior episodes or just gaming in general, shoot me a note. I would love to hear from you. For anybody who may be new, welcome. I do just want to take a couple minutes to talk about the anatomy of an episode just so that you all know what you're getting into when you listen to one of these because, for the most part, every single episode follows a similar form and format. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question and what its historical context is within the overall timeline of computer and video gaming. After we talk history and talk about how the game was made, we will dive into a pseudo sort of review section. I say pseudo pseudo review because we're not really going to assign a score or numerical value to things, but we do talk about every game in the perspective or from the perspective of what you might hear about during a review. Things like graphics, how does the game look? Sound and music, how does it how does it feel to actually listen to the game both from a sound effect perspective as well as a musical standpoint? the overall narrative and story of the experience, if the game has one, playability and controls, and then the overall feel. And we do this with the goal of reaching a verdict as far as how the game holds up today. And when we talk about that, we assign a game to one of several potential categories. At the very top, the top of our list, is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the pantheon of classic gaming, you pretty much know you're in for a good time. These are games that are true classics. They have stood the test of time. They have aged probably not at all from when they were originally released. And I can almost guarantee you will have fun with them. They are highly recommended from my perspective. Just below the pantheon are our golden oldies. These are games that may not have hit that Pantheon level. They're still amazing experiences. I still highly recommend that you play them. Certainly, if you have nostalgia for the game or you enjoy the genre, you are almost guaranteed to have a good time. I highly recommend these games. They are awesome experiences, just not quite at the same level as those games that make it into our Pantheon. 
Moving on down the list, we start getting into some of the more questionable kinds of games. These, The first uh, questionable set is our Mediocre Mention. These are games that may not have aged all that well. I can't really recommend you to go out and play them today if you have particular fondness for the game or you have nostalgia or you have a particular fondness for the genre. Go out, go ahead and do it. But I can't recommend these games to the majority of the population. And then finally, we reach the footnotes. These are those games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. These games I can't recommend to anybody to go back and play. You certainly can if you want to. I can't control you, nor would I want to. But these are games that I cannot recommend. They either have aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. Anyway, that is the anatomy of an episode. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Wolfenstein 3D. Wolfenstein 3D is a first-person shooter that was developed by id Software and published by Apogee Software and FormGen back in 1992. Before we talk about Wolfenstein 3D, I do just want to give a very brief history of the early ideas from the Deep Team, which was, of course, the team that would evolve into id Software. This episode is actually part two of what will be a four-part deep dive into id Software and its early history. So this is episode two. We did have an episode on Commander Keen a couple weeks ago. Uh, we are now diving into Wolfenstein 3D. But just to recap for anybody who may not have listened to the Commander Keen episode yet, the id Software team originally met working on Soft Disk Magazine. That was one of the early publications that would actually develop or distribute software on physical disks as opposed to just written or typed in magazines themselves. And while they were working with Softdisk Magazine, the team struck up a deal with Apogee Software to distribute episodic software via a shareware model. Shareware model being something we've talked about a couple times before. But basically, you would be able to release the first episode of your game for effectively free, not really free. Sometimes you had to spend a couple bucks at a computer store to buy it, but you would get like episode one and then you would be able to, assuming you liked it, you would send in the full payment for the rest of the episodes to whatever the software company was. You'd receive the rest of those episodes in the mail and you would then have a full game. Shareware was effectively a way of demoing or getting the experience into everybody's hand, giving them the ability to try it out before they buy for what was very little or very low investment upfront. Now, id, as they were working in this deal or working with this deal with Apogee Software, they were looking at how to create new games and new experiences. And in the process, they pioneered a new way of utilizing side-scrolling graphics on a computer, which is what ultimately led to the creation of the Commander Keen series of games. That title and those eventually six and a half episodes, and you could figure out why it's six and a half by listening to the Commander Keen episode. But they had six and a half episodes of Commander Keen. They were released and, for the most part, got pretty wide critical acclaim, especially because side-scrolling on computers wasn't really a thing at that time. 
Unfortunately, due to a legal issue with SoftDisk, because when they created Commander Keen, they had used all SoftDisk machines, they had to enter into a deal where they could pursue their own projects on the side, doing whatever they wanted to do, but they still had a contractual obligation to SoftDisk in that they would have to create new games for SoftDisk magazine every two months. So even though at this point, id Software was effectively id Software, they still had to create games for their old employer, SoftDisk magazine, for a certain period of time. Otherwise, they would have been in some pretty serious legal ramifications. And once again, if you want to hear more details about any of that, listen to the Commander Keen episode that we did from a few weeks ago that has all of these details and more about the early formation of id Software. Turning our attention now to the present, well, at least the present as it relates to Wolfenstein 3D, id Software itself was born on February 1st, 1991. And like we were just saying, they continued to work and develop software for SoftDisk because of that contractual requirement, but they did this very intelligently. They didn't just look at this and say, well, we have to create games for this magazine because we have to. They looked at it as an opportunity to use this contractual requirement to prototype new games or new game ideas with that magazine in the hopes of taking the technology that they would create and then rolling that technology into their future standalone titles. So they used it, even though they were required to create those games, they basically used it as a prototyping area for them to be able to try out different things, see what worked, see what didn't, with relatively low risk to themselves as a company. And it was also around this time, so they're doing all this prototyping stuff. It was around this time that John Carmack, who is the the programmer genius behind most of id Software's early creations, he wanted to move on to something new, and he wanted to move more into the three-dimensional space and start creating three-dimensional games. Now, it does warrant a brief discussion around what, when we say 3D games around the early 90s, what does that really mean? Because today, you look at basically any game and you take for granted that it's all three-dimensional. Everything is built with 3D engines and 3D acceleration is just the standard rather than the exception. Back in the early 90s, 3D acceleration wasn't even a thing. And when we talk about 3D games from around that time, what you're really talking about for the most part are flight simulators and flight simulations where that particular genre of gaming had a lot of focus around 3D worlds. And you could kind of understand why. If you're flying in a plane and you're trying to simulate that experience, it's not like you could really be presenting that on a flat plane. If you're trying to navigate a plane throughout the world, you kind of need a 3D world to be able to do that. And at the time, there were fairly detailed graphics that were available in these games. Once again, there was no real 3D acceleration, so most of those graphics were processed by the CPUs or the central processing units within those individual computers. And because of that, even though the graphics were detailed, there really wasn't much in the way of speed. And when you think about things like flight simulators, especially if anybody ever played some of the early Microsoft flight simulator products, you could really navigate the world, and the world felt pretty darn large, but the actual movement of the flight and speed and all that kind of stuff. It just wasn't there. It was a very slow paced kind of experience. So while you may have had 3D worlds, it was not a fast paced 3D world. That that speed was just completely lacking. And Carmack, for what it's worth, he wanted to change that. He wanted to deliver smooth, 
fast 3D visuals in a more direct, immersive kind of setting, so he began experimenting with how to potentially do that as part of the softest contract that id Software was still under the control or, or still being controlled by to a degree. That led to the creation of Hover Tank 3D back in April of 1991. So let's talk about this for just a minute or two. Hover Tank 3D was pretty primitive by today's standards. There were no texture maps, so just for everybody's awareness, when you look at 3D games today or or just modern games today, you look at a wall and you're going to see some sort of texture there, whether that's bricks or stone or wood, whatever it is, the wall looks like a real wall. Back with this early 3D technology, there was no texture mapping. It was basically just base colors. So if you looked at a wall in a game around from around this time, it might look blue or brown or gray, but that was it. There was no shading. There were no textures on it. Hover Tank 3D was a very flat shaded kind of game, meaning no texture maps there. All of the enemies in Hover Tank 3D were all sprite-based, had very simple animations, but the game had super smooth movement. It was a first-person perspective kind of game, and it was just a very fast-paced game. The speed and the rendering that was able to be done to create that kind of very fast-paced gameplay, especially in comparison to other 3D games of the time, was just unheard of and unseen. And the key behind that speed was a technology or a process known as ray casting. This is ray casting, not ray tracing, which anybody who plays around in modern gaming knows ray tracing is a way of calculating the way light rays bounce off of things and um, increases the overall realism of the lighting of the scene, which also comes with a pretty significant performance impact. Ray casting is a little bit different. Ray casting is a way of calculating and rendering only the objects and the environment that could be seen by the player as opposed to what can't be seen, like the area behind the player. So early computer experiences, without ray casting, if you were walking around in a world Every single object in that world would be rendered regardless of where it was in relation to your physical space. So if you walk past the door and the door is now behind you, the game engine was still keeping that rendered door in memory somewhere. With ray casting, the game is able to tell that you're looking forward, you've passed that door, there is no reason to continue to have that door rendered, so it was able to unload that from memory and improve the overall speed of the process. What that basically meant is that system requirements could be reduced while still maintaining a significant amount of speed when moving around the game world. Hover Tank 3D, because they experimented with these kinds of things, became a true predecessor for what would come uh, from id Software as they continue to develop this technology. So Overtime 3D was based on a brand new 3D, sort of 3D engine. And we've talked about engines a bit before. That's basically the, the overall code framework that runs all of the core processes within a game. So id Software became famous, actually, for their game engines. And John Carmack developed pretty much all of them, or at least most of them, especially around this time. And he introduced new concepts into gaming and computer graphics that were previously incredibly difficult or even sometimes considered impossible. We saw this already when talking about Commander Keen and the fact that he was able to create 2D side-scrolling and vertical-scrolling smooth kind of gameplay, which was really the only available on consoles 
around this time. He was able to bring it to the computer space, which was a revolutionary concept. We're now seeing a similar kind of technological leap, albeit on the three-dimensional plane. Hover tank itself only took six weeks to make. So creating the hover tank engine took six weeks. That is crazy fast in comparison to today's engines, where most of the time, and there was actually an interesting video I watched recently where there was a game designer from a current game was talking and answering questions that had been posed to him. And somebody wrote in the question, well, why don't you just design your own game engine or create your own game engine? Why do you have to use an engine like Unity or Unreal or something like that? And he basically said to create a new engine today would cost millions of dollars and take years of effort. And even then, you're probably not going to do it as good as what the engines are that are already out there. So today's environment is very different than what it was back in the early 90s. The Hover Tank 3D engine, John Carmack knocked that out in six weeks. You can't really do that today with all of the different technology that's out there. But kind of interesting to think about back then, the pace of development was dramatically different. That engine that Carmack would create, by the way, would eventually evolve for id Software's next game, which was called Catacomb 3D. Now, I do want to say, before we start talking about this, that id Software was not the only group working on 3D first-person games at the time. There were several other groups that were working on similar titles. One of those, one of those titles was Ultima Underworld, The Stygian Abyss. This was a game that was kind of a spin-off related to the Ultima series of uh, computer RPGs. And it was a fully realized first-person role-playing game, which was effectively a dungeon crawler. So there wasn't really an open-world environment, so to speak. You weren't walking around a completely fully realized world like you might see in like a Skyrim today. But you were basically walking around a bunch of dungeons. You were crawling around those dungeons, gathering loot killing bad guys, and otherwise having a good time. Ultima Underworld was famous for being one of the first games to utilize texture mapping in a first-person engine. We talked about texture mapping a couple minutes ago. That's where when you look at a scene or when you're trying to create a scene, it's not just flat shades of color, but you actually have images or textures that are applied to polygons or surfaces within the game world. So if you look at a wall, you see a brick wall, not just a red wall. Ultima Underworld was one of the first games to utilize that in a first-person perspective. And they had shown their original demo back at the Consumer Electronics Show, or CES, back in 1990. And anybody who saw it, especially in 1990, thought, oh my god, that is an incredibly impressive technological showcase. It looked amazing. Now, unfortunately, due to technological limitations, because to create a world like that and be able to actually play that on the screen, it is not cheap from a technology perspective. The game couldn't really run all that well. It either required an incredibly powerful PC for the time to be able to run it, or you'd just have to deal with slower gameplay and frame rates. So you might have an awesome looking visual, but the overall act of playing the game kind of suffered a little bit because you just... The technology wasn't there to create or to deliver the kind of power required by such an advanced engine. John Carmack himself saw this demo and he basically said, ah, I can do it better. So he went out to write a faster texture mapping engine, which is what would ultimately result in Catacomb 3D. So he went back 
to his hover tank 3D engine. And he decided to integrate texture maps into that 3D engine. So rather than doing flat shades anymore, he was now going to put texture maps in the game or in the game engine. So all walls that you would be able to walk through or walk around in the game world would be fully texture mapped, although the floors and the ceilings would remain flat color shading. So you might be able to walk through a world and the walls may look like they're bricks, but if you look up at the ceiling or down at the floor, it's gray or white or some other just standard flat color. And Carmack believed that he was going to be able to do this without sacrificing speed or driving the overall requirements to run the game higher. Ultima Underworld couldn't really do that. You had the awesome looking graphics, but you either needed a beast of a computer or you just couldn't really run it all that well. John Carmack always wanted to make sure that the gameplay was centric to the experience, so he tried to create this without sacrificing speed or making you have to build an incredible machine in order to run the game. So he began working on the game, which was actually a remake of a previous game that John Carmack had worked on, which was simply called Catacombs. This time he was going to uh, convert that Catacombs game and bring it into the new 3D engine. Beyond the texture mapping support that John Carmack was adding to the game, he also introduced the concept of seeing the player character's hand in the first-person viewport. So just real quickly here, this we're so early in the stage of first-person kind of experiences that back then, when you saw a first-person game or when you played a first-person game, it was literally just a window into the game world. There was nothing there that would indicate that you were controlling a character. It was basically, you could almost think of it as you controlling a camera. There was nothing on the screen in front of you that would have made you believe, oh yeah, I'm actually walking around here. It's just I'm moving a camera here. With Catacombs 3D, John Carmack added the fact that and when you look into the game world, not only is it a window into the world, but you can now see your player character's hand in front of you, which did an amazing thing psychologically. It made you now feel that you were actually a character walking around around the world. It basically changed the game. It changed it to that you really felt that you were now part of the environment, part of the world, and not just moving a camera or a window around into a predetermined space. Catacombs 3D was released in 1991, and it was credited as one of, if not the first, texture-mapped first-person title. Now, you might say, well, wait a second, you were just telling me about Ultima Underworld, Stygian Abyss. Wasn't that the first one? Well, yeah, it, it was, but Ultima Underworld didn't come out until 1992. So once again, going back to the whole concept of engine development back around this time, John Carmack saw the original demo for Ultima Underworld, said, I can do it better. I can release it sooner. He went out. He did that. So Catacombs 3D ended up coming out before Ultima Underworld, even though it wasn't even planned to be created before that demo was seen. Kind of crazy when you think about it like that. So Catacombs 3D was released. You could tell that John Carmack's focus was singularly and squarely on 3D. Its software, for everybody else that was working there, they were working on various titles in addition to what John Carmack was doing from a 3D perspective. Most of the id software team was working on more traditional two-dimensional games like what we saw in the Commander Keen series. But inside the company, there was a pretty, it was pretty well understood. It was pretty apparent that the focus was going to shift to 3D. And right around this time, Tom Hall, who was one of the individuals working on the team, and he was 
one of the more creative kind of forces behind the overall, I'll use the term in quotes, narratives behind some of its games, because as we've seen already, id Software wasn't really big on the narrative. They were really more focused on the gameplay. But Tom Hall always loved narratives and trying to drive story into the games. He brought forward a sci-fi project that he had called It's Green and Pissed. And um, we'll go we'll go back to that original concept, probably not, maybe not this episode, but certainly in a future episode, because that led to something even greater than Wolfenstein 3D, which we will talk about. But that idea that Tom Hall came forward with was actually passed over in favor of an idea by John Romero. John Romero being the other heavy hitter or one of the major heavy hitters within id Software, who was basically John Carmack's uh, partner, so to speak. Carmack was much more technical. He would work more on the 3D engines. John Romero was much more of an idea guy. He was more about the the design and creating the levels and really pushing the boundaries of what was possible, not necessarily from a technological perspective, more so from a gameplay or experiential standpoint. So John Romero came forward and he suggested that that id Software should focus on remaking the original Castle Wolfenstein using John Carmack's 3D technology. So Castle Wolfenstein was actually a game developed and released by Silas Werner back in 1981. It was a stealth-based game where basically you would go through and traverse mazes across multiple levels in order to explore Castle Wolfenstein. It was a top-down perspective, and it was one of the early stealth-based games that was created. The id team had very fond memories of playing this game back when they were younger and Uh, computer hobbyists or amateur computer uh, programmers, they really enjoyed playing that game and they thought it would translate well into 3D. However, there was a potential issue with the name. They wanted to remake Castle Wolfenstein, but they thought, well, wait a second, that game was already released. There might be a trademark there that they wouldn't be able to use the name or have the rights to actually create a true remake of the game. Uh, Luckily, however, that trademark had lapsed, so they were free and clear to go off and create a remake to Castle Wolfenstein. So they set out to create the game, and they had some ideals, I'll say, that as a team they were working towards. And each individual on the id Software team had a little bit of a different perspective. John Romero came in, and he said, no matter what we do, the action has to be fast-paced, and the controls need to be tight. You have to have complete control over your character. We have to really give that experience to the player in order for them to have a good time. John Carmack was all about the technology. He loved the technology aspect. He was going to be the guy creating the engine, and he was basically all about how do we make this as fast-paced as possible through the use of that technology so that he would be able to create something absolutely unique. Adrian Carmack, who is no relation to John Carmack, Adrian Carmack was the art guy, for lack of a better term. He wanted to get away from the kid-friendly games that id Software had been doing. Commander Keen was pretty brightly colored and didn't really have much in the way of of too much gore or things like that. It was a little bit more kid-friendly. Adrian Carmack wanted to explore a darker style for the next title. And Tom Hall... Yeah, he kind of just went along with it. He wasn't, from what I could tell, he wasn't particularly keen on the idea. He really wanted to, he was hoping at least that they would revisit his original idea uh, around It's Green and Pissed. But at the time, its software team was not feeling that. 
Tom Hall, though, was at the time its chief designer. So he did have a bit of control within the company, but ultimately the team decided to go with a different approach. So it began to work with Apogee Software, once again using the shareware model, and they also worked with FormGen for a full retail release. So this was going to be one of the earlier times where not only would they pursue a shareware release, where they would release the first episode of content to the public, and then they would accept direct mail order or call-in kinds of orders that they would then ship out to their customers, they would also release the full game as a full retail title in the stores through their publishing relationship with FormGen. It was interesting that they were pursuing both the shareware and full release at the same time, something that really wasn't done all that much. I can't even, I don't recall if there was ever a time where that was happening before. This might've been one of the first. I know there were some interesting uh, situations around the Commander Keen releases, especially episode six, where it was supposed to be originally part of the shareware trilogy, but instead was released as a full-scale game separately in retail. But that's a little bit different here because that never made it into the trilogy. That really was treated as a standalone release. For Wolfenstein, they were going to release both a shareware model as well as a full retail kind of model, which was a little bit of a different kind of thing. So with those ideals in place, design began on the game in earnest, and John Carmack set out to build the engine, and he built it in a month, which once again, absolutely crazy, but he added in features beyond what he had used in Catacombs 3D. So in this new engine, he would include doors, he would have some decorative environmental objects, like you might see potted plants or paintings on walls, things that really had no purpose other than creating a little bit more of a a better look and feel for the overall environment. He also took the time to increase the color palette from EGA, which was 16 colors able to be displayed on screen at one time, to VGA, which was for 256 colors. So this was a pretty dramatic increase in the overall color count available to the game. That basically meant that all of the environments, the characters, the weapons, items, everything could be much more detailed and look more realistic because they had more colors to play with. Uh, John Romero and Tom Hall ended up building the levels for the game and Adrian Carmack worked on the art. Bobby Prince, who was the composer for several of the Commander Keen games because the original Commander Keen trilogy had no music, but the later ones did. So they went back to Bobby Prince again and he ended up working on the music and sound effects for their new game. Now, another key addition that wasn't previously available because the technology hadn't been there was the whole concept of hidden secret walls that could be open to reveal secret areas in the games. And back then, that really wasn't part of game world, certainly not from a first-person perspective, but John Carmack figured out a way to build that into his engine, and that gave the game a major gameplay boost, and it would be super influential. This is something where once, once you add Wolfenstein 3D, the concept of secrets being hidden in first-person levels and being able to be found and opened and things like that, that then became part of pretty much every single first-person shooter that would follow. So an incredibly influential addition to the overall genre. Tom Hall also added a backstory for the game because like we said, Tom Hall was very big on story and the overall narrative elements in game design. He didn't look at a game, even if it was something that was a primarily gameplay-driven experience. He didn't look at it, and he didn't want there to be something here just for the sake of gameplay. 
And the way he was doing this, he was really very inspired and influenced by the way film and television worked, where a lot of times for a television show or for a movie, uh, the individuals behind the overall concept or the story would come up with what they called a Bible for the show, which basically outlined all of the backgrounds, all of the motivations for the characters, all of the different lore behind the scenes stuff that you may not necessarily see on the screen, but it would help to shape the overall experience that the director and the cast and everybody else would be creating. Tom Hall did the same exact thing, albeit for the games that he was working on. Unfortunately, that overall concept of of taking that focus and trying to build that kind of focus for the narrative into the games, that was not a shared opinion amongst the rest of the id team. And we'll see more about that in a little bit. But the rest of the id software team didn't really care all that much about narratives. And I believe John Carmack even said at one point that games don't need stories. They need gameplay, but they don't really need stories. Tom Hall would beg to differ. But regardless, the team still went forward and started or continued to create the game. And this game would be one of the first titles to utilize blood and gore in their in their game. Anybody who knows id Software today knows that most of their games have a fairly good amount of graphic content in there. Wolfenstein 3D was going to be one of the first games to really push the bloody and gory kind of content. And the team got some pushback from FormGen on the content. They said, FormGen said, hey, this is this is a little much. I don't think we should be we should be doing this. You should probably pull it back a little bit. So what did id Software decide to do? They decided to add even more gore and make it an even darker experience. They added skeletons. They added a bunch of other occult kind of elements to the game. So they didn't really take that feedback to heart. Or if they did, they just decided, no, we're just going to do it anyway. Apogee, on the other hand, was thrilled. They they were absolutely thrilled with the development of the game and how it was coming along. And they were so excited that they convinced id to move from what was the standard three-episode sharer model at the time into a six-episode deal. Uh, in one other demonstration of how much Apogee valued their relationship with id, because they had been working with them now for a little bit, the company increased id's royalty deal and even agreed to make the next contractually obligated game for Softdisk Magazine themselves, which would allow id software to focus exclusively on Wolfenstein 3D. So 3D Realms, or Apogee at the time, Apogee eventually became 3D Realms as we talked about during our Duke Nukem episode, but Apogee actually said, you know what, we will actually take over the reins of one of your contractually obligated games so that you can focus only on Wolfenstein 3D. They had that much faith in the team and that much faith that Wolfenstein 3D was going to be an amazing game. The first episode of Wolfenstein 3D would release on May 5th in 1992, that was around six months after starting the development and other episodes would release shortly thereafter. To say it was a success would be an understatement. It was very widely beloved across the entire gaming landscape and there was also a huge mod scene that sprouted up around the game. Uh, mods or modifications being changes to the overall game that would add new functionality or new levels or weapons or things like that. There were a bunch of level editors, map packs, all these things sprung up because the community behind the game was just so enthralled with the game. They didn't want it to end after the delivered content. They wanted to continue to add content themselves and keep the game rolling. 
So beyond its initial release, Wolfenstein 3D would also be ported to numerous platforms like the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, the Atari Jaguar, the Apple Macintosh, the Panasonic 3DO, and others. And as you guys know, I love talking about the ports of different games and how how ports kind of differ from each other. I found one of the biggest or one of the most interesting things I found with all these different ports was the music changed dramatically. If you play Wolfenstein 3D on DOS, it's a fairly standard kind of sound blaster ad libby kind of style. Uh, nothing too crazy. It sounded good. I mean, it absolutely sounded fine for the game, but nothing crazy. If you look at the Apple Macintosh version and especially the Panasonic 3DO, their soundtracks, I mean, I think they were either heavily sampled wavetable kind of synthesis or CD audio itself. The sound was dramatically different. The Panasonic 3DO, by the way, in particular, sounded awesome. I mean, you might, I, I mistake, or you could have mistaken some of those songs for something from like a World War II kind of movie. It sounded really, really good. I didn't play the Panasonic 3DO version. I kind of want to now, but the music was was really good. Beyond those ports, though, there were also a number of canceled ports. They originally planned to bring one out for the Sega Genesis. That never happened. Also, the Atari Lynx, which was Atari's handheld system, didn't happen. It wasn't really uncommon at the time, but it was a little surprising to me that the Super Nintendo would get a port while the Genesis would not. Though, obviously, as for anybody who's played Wolfenstein 3D, the Super Nintendo version would be pretty heavily censored by Nintendo. Back then, Nintendo was still in their family-friendly mode, so they weren't really looking at gore and guts and occult kind of elements. Uh, so it was a pretty heavily censored port, but regardless. When the game was released, id and Apogee had relatively moderate expectations. They were thinking they'd probably make around $60,000 in its first month. Instead, it nearly doubled that projection to $100,000 in its first month, and that was just the beginning. It became immensely successful over the months following its release. Uh, eventually, it would become the top shareware title of 1992, and it would sell at a rate of 4,000 copies a month. That doesn't sound super impressive today, but that was pretty amazing for the time. It also vastly outperformed its prior series that was published through Apogee, which was the Commander Keen series. Keen had been making around $10,000 a month for Apogee. Wolfenstein, by contrast, averaged $200,000 a month for the first 18 months of its release. So it stayed at the top of the charts for a long time after its release. It won numerous accolades across the entire industry, and it was widely considered to be one of the best and most innovative games released in 1992. That being said, it was not without some controversy. The gore was questionable to some, and the inclusion of Nazi iconography uh, actually caused the game to be banned in Germany, and that was fairly common in Germany. Mo most of the time, anything related to Nazis or Nazism was banned. Wolfenstein 3D was no exception. That was banned in Germany until 2019. So it's only been available legally in Germany since 2019, which is absolutely crazy to think about. Regardless, Wolfenstein 3D was super successful, and over 20% of its sales did come from the international market, even with that ban in Germany. Uh, there is one interesting side story here I do want to relay. Id Software, around this time, went to Sierra 
Entertainment, which was otherwise known as Sierra Online for many of the adventure gamers out there. And it went there with the prospect of selling the company to them. So they entered these discussions and there was the potential for a multi-million dollar deal. But John Romero actually stepped up and said, you know, I think there's going to be a culture clash here. This probably is not going to make a ton of sense. So id Software decided to remain independent. In retrospect, it would have been kind of hard to reconcile Wolfenstein 3D being made or being under the same umbrella as the company that made King's Quest and other family-friendly kind of entertainment. A little bit of a different culture there. I think it could have worked, but we'll never know. The majority of the id Software team had uh, continued to work on expansion content for Wolfenstein 3D, which was Spear of Destiny, which would eventually release in September of 1992, except for John Carmack. Carmack, because he always wanted to be on the forefront of technology, he had already moved on to his next project, and that project would revolutionize the gaming industry forever. That story, however, is a story for another time. We will come back to that, of course, but not just yet. Wolfenstein as a property would lay dormant for a while after the release of its expansion pack outside of the mod community, which still exists to this day, by the way, including a number of engine ports and total conversions for the game. There would eventually be a small revitalization of the brand, though, with the release of Return to Castle Wolfenstein in 2001. And for anybody who's played that, the only thing I remember about that game is the insane flamethrower physics, which to me at the time was just mind-blowing. Um, I'm sure others might have similar opinions. At least I hope so. Maybe I'm not, <laughs> I hope I'm not too weird about that. But I remember that game specifically for the flamethrower physics, which were just awesome. The biggest revival for Wolfenstein, though, would come in 2014 with the release of Wolfenstein The New Order, which created a balls-to-the-wall experience that was highly acclaimed by pretty much everyone and led directly to multiple sequels and spinoffs. We haven't seen a new Wolfenstein game since 2019, but I'm going to wager a bet that we haven't seen the last of it. Beyond the franchise itself, though, Wolfenstein 3D does have a lasting legacy. Many people consider it the grandfather of the modern first-person shooter, and it's not hard to see why. Most, if not all, of the innovations it developed for the game became staples of the genre, even stretching into today. While there have been countless refinements and improvements to the core formula over the years, Wolfenstein 3D deserves its place as a landmark title in gaming history, and it's definitely a game that will always be remembered. We are now going to transition into talking more so about Wolfenstein 3D and what it feels like to play it today. So just to level set and, and to start from the same playing field, Wolfenstein 3D, like we were talking about, is a first-person shooter, pretty much the grandfather of first-person shooters. It is basically the game that set up the FPS genre to be the FPS genre. So what does that mean? Well, Wolfenstein 3D had an episodic structure. It would ship with six distinct episodes. The first episode would be released via shareware, and then the other episodes could be purchased separately. Now, I believe the way they did that was the first three episodes were kind of a bundle, and then the second three episodes were kind of a bundle. So it wasn't like it was 
six continuous episodes. They were kind of split a little bit, but like we were talking about before, uh, Apogee had convinced its software to make some additional episodes and maps, so that's what they ended up doing. Regardless, the episodic structure that they have in play, which doesn't really follow from a story perspective, it's really just collections of levels, uh, that became the standard for first-person shooters moving forward. Each of Wolfenstein's episodes would have nine core levels and one secret level per episode. And there was a bare-bones story that was told after each episode. There was like a screen or two of text that was included there where you would basically have a little bit of a story, a little bit of a, of a narrative built in there. Like, hey, you've just taken out so-and-so, and now you've got to go down deeper into the Nazi compounds and take out this next guy. Um, so, I mean, there was some narrative there. It wasn't a whole heck of a lot of narrative, but there was something there to connect some of the levels together. And the, the core concept behind the game is that you would navigate these first-person levels and you would find key cards to progress throughout the levels and unlock elevators, which would let you move on to the next floor. Along the way, you could unlock secrets. You'd pick up various items like med packs and food and ammo and all the other kinds of stuff that have become staples of the first-person shooter genre. Also a staple of the FPS genre is the fact that you could select multiple difficulties. For me, I always play games on whatever the game considers to be the normal difficulty. I know that there is some discussion in the gaming culture around difficulty in games, and some people believe you have to play the hardest possible game or the hardest possible way to play the game in order to, to have a good time. I'm a firm believer of play the game the way the developer intended it, which for me is whatever the normal, in quotes, difficulty is. So that's how I play all my games. That's how I played Wolfenstein 3D. Now, unlike future first-person shooters, in Wolfenstein 3D, there were only four different weapons. You had a pistol, you had a machine gun, you had a chain gun, and if you ran out of ammo, you had a knife. And all of those individual guns actually shared the same exact ammunition. So it wasn't like you had to pick up different ammunition between the machine gun and the chain gun and the pistol. They were all based on just bullets, and depending on the situation, you would use one of those weapons to tackle your enemies. And there were various enemy types throughout the various episodes. Uh, they started, or they had some enemies that were more realistic kinds of peoples like officers and guards and things like that. And then they also stretched into the more fantastical kinds of elements. They had some levels that zombie soldiers were there, which by the way, they absolutely suck. And they also had some uh, fantastical kinds of bosses like mechanical Adolf Hitler. Uh, so they did have quite a variety of the overall enemy types throughout the game that ranged from the realistic to the more fantastic. Before we get into the uh, more or the deeper discussion around the specific elements of the game, I do want to take a look at what the box says, because like we've talked about before, oftentimes around this time, in order to figure out if you're going to buy a game, you kind of needed to look at the box. You may not have had the ability to read about it in a magazine, and you certainly didn't have the internet to be able to look up reviews. So a lot of times what was said on the box is what ultimately drove your buying decision. So for Wolfenstein 3D... The back of the box says, Amazing 3D action. This masterpiece of wild action and unbelievable graphics brings you virtual reality at its best as you move through a sensationally realistic 3D world of amazing detail. It's World War II, and you are BJ Blazkowicz, 
the Allies' bad boy of espionage, a terminal action seeker built for abuse with an attitude to match. There's just one small problem. You've been captured by the Nazis, tortured, and imprisoned beneath the Castle Wolfenstein where you await execution. Bummer. Now you must do anything to escape from the belly of a Nazi dungeon, or die trying. Experience a state-of-the-art graphics environment featuring 256 colors, smooth, scrolling, virtual reality. Hear professionally composed music with AdLib, Sound Blaster, or 100% compatible soundboard. Enjoy four levels of difficulty for the novice to experienced player. Battle Nazis, evil scientists, mutants, and more with knives, pistols, and machine guns. And start play easily and be instantly immersed in the sights and sounds of all six incredible missions with 60 action-packed levels of play. And of course, on the back of the box, there were several screenshots as well. So that was how the game was marketed on the box. And based on the words, it sounded like something that you would never have seen or would not have seen back around that time. We'll talk about whether it actually holds up right now as we move into our pseudo review. So just as a reminder, we will talk about this from several different perspectives. We'll talk about the graphics, the sound and the music, the narrative and story, the playability and controls, and then of course the overall feel of playing the experience today versus when it was released over 30 years ago, which is... <laughs> That's a long time. It's hard to believe. Anyway, starting by talking about the graphics. Eh, you know, they were very, they were definitely primitive by today's standards. They were limited. They had some limited texture mapping on the walls, the ceiling and the floor, like what we saw and what we talked about with some of the other engines that Carmack had worked on around that time. The ceiling and floor were the same color. It was just a flat shaded kind of thing. Textures on the walls. Okay, fine. Character work was okay. It wasn't really super detailed. For the time, definitely pretty awesome. And moving into the VGA color palette really gives it a lot more lasting appeal, at least from my perspective, than it would have if it was only EGA color graphics. There's just not a whole heck of a lot of detail you can get with EGA, especially in a first-person perspective, so I appreciate the VGA palette that was used for Wolfenstein 3D. Now, talking about a little bit with the level design, every single level was effectively a maze, and the environments would bleed into each other, which made navigation a little bit tricky. So graphically, at this time, you weren't really talking about environments with a ton of detail. There were a lot of levels in this game where every single hallway kind of looked the same and really was no distinction between one versus another. So it did make navigating a little bit difficult, not impossible, but the environments all felt kind of samey a little bit. There were certain sections of levels where, where there were some differences, like you were in an area where you can certainly tell that it was more of an office kind of setting versus a dungeon kind of setting, and those were cool. But for the most part, all of the graphics, all the environmental kinds of graphics bled into each other a little bit overall the graphics were fine really nothing to write home about um, i mean it's a relatively early game it's certainly an early example of a first person shooter game so from that perspective i totally get it but if i'm looking at it from today's standpoint graphics not really anything to write home about so much but i will say the speed of the experience um, it was super smooth, and the animations looked really good. If it wasn't for the total lack of texture on the floor and the ceilings, 
Uh, I think that was really one of the things that that really made it feel more like an old title versus a retro-inspired or retro title, because the complete lack of texture mapping on the floor and ceiling just, it kind of showed its age a little bit more directly than what you might otherwise have thought. If there was a little bit more texture mapping there, I think you could have seen Wolfenstein 3D, and it might have actually passed for a modern reimagining or a modern version of a retro style title. I would still have the same complaints around the overall level design, but if the graphics were a little bit different, I think it still would have been okay. Not too much to complain about graphics wise. I know it sounds like I'm complaining about them, but it was a very early example of a first person shooter and a very early example of texture mapping. So I can't hold it against it too much, but if I am putting on the today's lens and looking at it from today's perspective, it's definitely aged a bit on the graphics front. With sound and music, the sound effects all felt appropriate. There were various grunts and minor voice lines throughout the game that that they worked. They were well integrated into the overall experience. The music took a little bit of a backseat from my perspective, but I think that was intentional. I have no proof for that. There were definitely musical pieces and a soundtrack behind the game and for each of the levels. And I did enjoy all of the music that I heard, but it feels like they were designed to blend into the background and weren't necessarily designed to be 100% memorable. I don't know that, that you would look at any of the Wolfenstein tracks that were included in any of the levels and start humming them somewhere else or, or be seeking them out to listen to outside of the game. They didn't really, for me, have that same staying power as say, when we talk about Doom, like the very first episode of Doom, that musical track is iconic. That thing, you you just know that music. Wolfenstein 3D, and granted, I probably played Doom more than I have Wolfenstein 3D, but even so, I don't think any of the music in Wolfenstein 3D is nearly as memorable as what you would see in Doom and what you would hear in some of the other kinds of first-person shooters that would follow. That being said, I really do enjoy Bobby Prince's overall musical style. I enjoyed his work that he had done on Commander Keen. The music here is similarly good. It's just not something that, for me, is going to be entirely memorable outside of the game. I do remember the main theme of the game as well as the menu music. I don't know that you really want to be humming the main theme anywhere, just walking around the world, because that's basically a recreation, a little bit of an alteration of what was the Nazi anthem. So humming that tune anywhere, probably not a particularly good idea. But the rest of the music, okay, just not really memorable from my standpoint. As far as narrative and story goes, there were definitely elements of story, and that was primarily between episodes. And you can kind of see the general arc of your character escaping from the Nazi dungeon and blasting his way through the Nazi compounds to eventually eliminate high-ranking members of the enemy party and kill off Mecha Hitler. But the story definitely takes a backseat here. You're not going to be watching a bunch of cutscenes and have a lot of different narrative exposition going on that kind of gives you all of the motivations behind your characters. Basically, you got to escape and you got to kill a bunch of people to do it. And you know what? That's okay. The purpose of this game was not to deliver an Oscar-worthy story. It was really to deliver fast-paced action, smooth and satisfying gameplay. And in that regard, the story was more of a backdrop. It still worked, and I still enjoyed the narrative elements that were included in the game. It just was not a central focus of the game, and that is entirely okay in this instance. 
Um, I did mention that there were really no cutscenes in the game. The one exception there, and it really wasn't a narrative-based cutscene, but it is something I found interesting. After you would kill each of the bosses for a given episode, there would be a kill cam that would actually show up that would that would kind of replay the boss's death uh, one or two times, which I thought was kind of innovative. I thought that was kind of cool. I don't know that that was used in other games before Wolfenstein 3D. I have no, no uh, proof of that. So I'm curious if anybody is aware of other kill cam kind of um, experiences or kill cam kind of mechanics in other games before Wolfenstein 3D. Just one of those curiosity things. Uh, if anybody knows, let me know. Moving on to the playability and controls. The controls and movement for the game, pretty simple. I mean, you could walk, you could turn, you could strafe, you could shoot, and you can open doors and secrets. So relatively simple on the control front. There were only three guns, like we talked about. Um, but I will say, whether you controlled the game via a keyboard, a mouse, or a joystick, the game was pretty much a joy to play. It felt really nice just playing the game. I mean, it was definitely primitive, but... It felt good. Like I mean, there was nothing. I had no complaints for the controls for the most part. The only potential issue that I saw, and this is one that was very common with early first-person shooter games, when you didn't have the ability to mouse look. And I know mouse look wouldn't really come into play until you had true 3D worlds that you could navigate. And, and that's really where it makes sense because otherwise you're not really dealing with height or verticality. So mouse look in, in the earlier kind of first-person shooter games, which are really more like 2.5D versus 3D, makes total sense. But without that mouse look and the need to have a hotkeyed strafe, so it wasn't like you could kind of strafe and turn at the same time, or at least I didn't find a combination of controls that would let me do that, it does make navigation a bit less smooth than what would become commonplace in first-person shooters moving forward. You can mess around with the control bindings to make things feel a little bit better, and I did do that. And there is there are some control schemes there that you will find will probably work for you. And I found one in particular that basically included the mouse for some for the strafing and the keyboard for general movement and it it felt good yeah and i eventually once you get used to it it feels just as good to play as any other first person shooter but getting used to it and getting getting to that point where the controls feel second nature when for years and years and years we've been programmed to play first person shooters a certain way took a little bit of getting used to i do want to talk a little bit about difficulty here as well specifically the enemy difficulty in the game so the way that the controls worked and the way that shooting works in the game is all of the enemies were hit scan enemies, meaning if you were firing in a given direction, uh, you were going to hit them and they were going to hit you. So it wasn't really, you didn't have to aim all that well or all that accurately to hit enemies and all damage was distance based. So what that basically meant is if you were really close to an enemy, your damage would be multiplied. And if you were farther away, damage would kind of drop off. Similarly for enemies, if you were right next to an enemy and somebody shot on you or shot at you, you were going to be in for a world of hurt. And if they were further away, probably a little bit less. Now, I will say that this is something that made my playstyle have to evolve throughout playing the game. When I first started playing the game, I would play it the way I do many modern first-person shooters. I would kind of charge into rooms and I'd be had my guns, guns ready to go and I would just kind of start blasting away. And what I quickly became aware of, because the game teaches you this pretty early, 
is that if you just burst into rooms, you're going to miss enemies that are hidden in corners or right around doors, and they are going to put a world of hurt on you. And because the the damage was distance-based, if you walk into a room and you fail to take into account enemies that might be in the corner or right behind a door or things like that, they're going to blast you and kill you so quickly. And it's going to make the game feel incredibly difficult. And it's going to be one of those things where you're like, oh my God, this is, this is really hard, way harder than what I expected. So you have to adapt to the, to the environment. You have to adapt to the way the game actually plays. Once I did that, and once I started being a little bit more methodical, and I started kind of dodging in and out of rooms as I would open up doors, or even sometimes opening up a door, firing a, a bullet in there, and then backing away and waiting for enemies to come to the doors, and then just mow them all down, it became a lot, a lot better, a lot easier to play, and and just became an overall more enjoyable experience. But boy, the amount of enemies that were hiding just around the corner or just around a door, just aiming right at you, waiting for you to show up. It got a little excessive, and until you get used to it, the difficulty there was a little bit higher than probably what it needed to be. So overall, how did it feel to play the game? I know it's an old game, and I don't think anyone looking at the game would think otherwise, but it still feels extremely satisfying to play. And one of the reasons for that is that other than the bosses, no enemy in the game were bullet sponges. It wasn't like you had to unload a full clip of ammunition into anybody in order to down them. There was, and part of that is probably because of the distance-based damage, but every single shot that you would take, there was a palpable feel to every gun and every shot. It felt incredibly satisfying to shoot and kill any of the enemies that were peppered around the levels. And it didn't matter what gun you used. Like, you could use the pistol and the pistol felt super powerful. You might be able to get a one-shot kill with the pistol, even on even on some of the harder enemies. The chain gun, when you start shooting them, they start they basically everybody kind of freezes in place because they're getting peppered with bullets, which makes sense. Same thing with the machine gun. And every single shot that you take felt very physical. It it was not like some games you play and you shoot somebody or you shoot an enemy, and it's like, okay. I guess I shot him. I guess he took some damage, but you can't really tell all that well because it just doesn't feel like that physical kind of response or it just doesn't feel as palpable. Not an issue with Wolfenstein 3D. Every single shot you take, it felt meaty and it felt great to play. And like we were talking about, if you are caught unaware, enemies will wreck you. So you may be able to completely destroy enemies with any of your guns, any of your weapons, But enemies are going to do the same. They will kill you with a single pistol shot sometimes. So you need to compensate with your overall play style in order to not be totally destroyed by enemies waiting around corners. The levels, like we talked about, can be confusing to navigate, and their design really feels more like mazes than actual real environments that you might encounter in real life. But I do have to call a couple of things into Um, or I do have to bring a couple things into attention or to attention and it's all around episode six. Like we talked about, there are six episodes in the game and episodes one through five, you know, pretty good. I mean, they felt really good. Episode six in general, the whole design for the game, and this is my perspective, this is my personal opinion. So there are probably going to be others that, that feel differently. Episode six in general, I felt like the design just went off a cliff 
totally downhill. They decided to throw all balance out of the window and just throw everything out at you. It was just, it was incredibly uh, tedious. And the design, especially episode six, floor seven, it was an awful, awful, awful maze. Just just confusing and just ridiculous design. I don't know why anybody thought that that particular level, the way that that maze was designed, would be a good idea. Everything else in episode six felt kind of absurd, too. I mean, not to say that Wolfenstein 3D was the best balanced first-person shooter out there. It, it wasn't. I mean, there were definitely things that I feel could have been improved. But episode six, just, I have no idea what they were thinking with episode six. And basically, let me let me lay out a scenario here, just so that everybody can kind of understand some of the pain with this particular episode. Every single, or at least it felt like every single floor on episode six would have the same kind of design elements where you would walk forward and there'd be some sort of hallway or some sort of column system or something. And you would kind of inch forward and maybe there's enemies on each side of the hall, maybe not. Okay, whatever. And you'd kind of inch forward again and then there'd be more and then more, and then more. And it repeated the same exact design where basically enemies were hidden everywhere and it made the overall experience, you had to slow down to a crawl in order to actually progress. Or you had to go absolutely crazy and just run through everything and then turn around and mow everybody down as they would turn their corners and you would be able to then just kind of funnel them into a kill hallway. So there were a couple different ways you could potentially play it, but the overall design, it was just... It, the levels felt worse. The The balance was just not there. It was too arbitrarily difficult. I understand that you want your final episode of the game to probably be the hardest that you create for the game. And I totally get that. The way they did this, though, the way they did that for episode six, I just think they completely failed. I'm, I'm sorry, but episode six for me was my least favorite episode and the fact that they repeated the same exact design elements multiple floors in episode six and it, it just felt like they had run out of innovation by that point and they decided you know what we're going to do we're just going to make this so darn difficult and we're going to make this the level design so convoluted that we're just throwing everything out at the player and in some games some games you can absolutely do that and make sense this one, they just didn't have the nuance. They didn't have the balance. They didn't have the wherewithal to really do it the right way. From my perspective, episode six nearly brought down the rest of the game. Actually, I will say it. Episode six brought down the rest of the game. Up until episode six, I was having a really good time. Episode six for me was not a good time. I just, and it wasn't because it was difficult. The difficulty was, was okay. I mean, it was harder, but I could get used to that. It was the design. The design decisions that they threw in there were just really irritating to me. I just feel like they didn't do it the right way. Uh, I do have one other bone to pick with the game, and that is that there were a couple of levels where it felt like, and I could be wrong about this, so please correct me if I am wrong, but it seemed like there were a couple levels where you actually had to find a secret passage in order to progress. And let me talk to you about these secret passages in Wolfenstein 3D. Some of them make perfect sense. There are some levels where secrets are hidden behind paintings and you walk up to the painting and you hit your space bar and it opens to reveal a secret area and you think, oh, you know what? That's clever. So of course you want to go around and you start, start pressing space bar and spamming it around every single painting and picture that you see. And it doesn't always work, of course, but 
That, to me, makes sense. There are other secrets which are simply just walls that randomly open to reveal secret areas. I'm okay with those, too, actually. That, like, doesn't, that doesn't bother me at all because they're completely optional. If you find them, awesome. You get a cool little gift or secret. If you don't find them, no biggie. It's just part of the game that for people who are really dedicated and want to try to uncover every single aspect of the game, you can do that. Where I start having an issue is where secrets are required to progress the overall game. And with there being a couple levels where if you don't find the secret, you're stuck, literally. Um, Once again, I may be wrong about that, but I, I remember one level in particular where if you didn't find the secret, you could not get to the key that you needed in order to progress into the level and into future floors in the game. So if I miss something, let me know. But that that kind of design where the secret is required, I had a little bit of an issue with that. Uh, there were also, and we talked about this already, there was some variety to the floors and the locales throughout the game, but mostly it's just corridors connected to rooms which are connected to other corridors. That particular element of the fact that the floors were kind of just there and mazes, they didn't really detract from the feel of the game. It was a little bit of a distraction. Um, but overall, it didn't really didn't really take me out of the experience. So you may be thinking to yourself, well, boy, he was really hard on episode six. <laughs> what, what did he feel about the, the game in general? I'm, I'm going to be honest, like the rest of the game was incredibly fun. The game remained fun to play and I enjoyed my time playing it. It's not the most technically proficient first person shooter, but that's because there really wasn't many first person shooters before it existed. So I can't find fault with it. It is still, and it was still a blast to play, but I will never come off my soapbox as it relates to episode six. Episode six to me was just a, an example of how not to design a bunch of Wolfenstein 3D levels. Every other episode of the game, I think was totally fine. So what is our verdict? Where does this sit? I know you might be thinking I was overly critical, but I still believe Wolfenstein 3D is a golden oldie. I don't think it reaches the Pantheon level because there are elements of the game that have aged. And there are elements of the game where the design decisions, for me, I kind of disagree with. But overall, I still think it's a worthwhile experience. The controls and the overall feel is still great. It still feels great today. There are elements that just do not. I do, however, recommend that you play the game both because it's a fun and well-made game, but also because it is historically significant. Everyone should experience what was effectively the birth of a genre and what would become one of the most played game types in history. You owe it to yourself, just from a historical perspective, beyond the fact that the game itself is fun and still is a good game to play. You owe it to yourself to experience the history of first-person shooters and specifically what is the game that really started it all? For that reason, Wolfenstein 3D is, for me, a golden oldie. That was our episode on Wolfenstein 3D. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out and provide feedback or suggestions or just simply talk about games, there are a couple ways you can reach out to me. I am on Twitter with the handle at ClassicGamingT, and I also have an email address, ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. 
I am legitimately interested in hearing what you all think, so feel free to drop me a line if you feel so inclined. Before we call it for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on the point-and-click adventure game Blue Force, released by Tsunami Media back in the early 90s. So if anybody has any particularly fond memories or not-so-fond memories of Blue Force, feel free to write in. I'm interested in hearing what you all think. At the same time, I recognize this podcast is probably available nearly everywhere that podcasts live. So if you would, I would love it if you could leave a review on your podcast service of choice. This is not about bolstering star counts or trying to artificially inflate our overall ratings. I am legitimately interested in hearing what everybody thinks, and I am also interested in making sure that I can create the best possible podcast for all of us and for all of you. Uh, the only way to do that is to get feedback and figure out what's working, what isn't working. Hopefully things are things are going okay and everybody's enjoying the content. But if there are areas for improvement or opportunities to do things differently, I'm definitely interested in learning about those and trying to work them into the podcast. Once again, I want to make sure we're creating the best possible podcast for everybody. The only way to do that is to make sure that we're all on the same page and getting that feedback. We are still growing. I am still developing this community. I've been really pleased with our progress so far and with some of the feedback that I've gotten, but there's always opportunity for more. So if you feel inclined, please let me know. We will be back in around a week with our episode on Blue Force. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye.